Hi, Gabriella. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Will. So happy to be here. So you grew up in Cali, Colombia, and I always try to ask our guests about a formational moment in their lives. And for you, I would imagine growing up in Colombia and then doing a lot of work with Plan International, their Colombian chapter on the post-conflict work and youth empowerment, youth engagement in Colombia. That period of your life is, is really interesting to me. So was there a moment in that period of time in Colombia when you realized you wanted to work on global inequality? Well, I think, as, as you say, growing up there, I remember many times going with my brother to accompany my mother, who went a lot to, to the slums, the growing slums around Cali. And it was something that other kids in my school never experienced. But it really colored my perspective from early on in life. And my brother and I were there playing with other kids as my mother was busy with the community work. And, and then we discovered another world of what these other children like us were experiencing. And it really struck me. So I have this memory of um, picking up um, a microphone and a tape recorder that uh, my mom had. She was a linguistics professor, so she recorded lots of things. And so I took the microphone and stood on the bed and started a speech about how I was going to end poverty. Wow. And I think I was around six Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I, this is uh, something I remember the moment there myself with the microphone. And yeah. I wonder if I should listen to it again and see the, what, whether <laughs> what I was saying at the time made more sense wow. than what I say now. But yes, <laughs> that's an image that I have. Oh my gosh. So you were thinking about poverty at six years old or roughly? Yes, more or less. And yes, I was thinking, you know, what are the best ways? What should I do? And in fact, when I, when I'm, was thinking about what to study at university there were different options in the end I was trying to think what actually covers more the sort of I want to think of the whole system so in the end I, I ended up with philosophy wow. which is not the immediate maybe choice if you're but I, I found that this was a way to find the whole framework and then I, I, I absolutely I remember in my 20s my drive was to say, I want to be useful. How am I going to be useful? And uh, how do I apply? How, how mm -hmm. can I be part of, of changing things? Yeah. Was there a certain philosopher or branch of philosophy that resonated with you when it came to addressing inequality? So actually, when I started, I, I, I probably got you know, fascinated with the study of philosophy in general and questioning and, and seeing things from different perspectives. But I actually, I, I, I think I took a detour. So in philosophy itself, I didn't find it. And I think that's I why I didn't <laughs> actually continue on that track. And I became much more of a, of a doer. So mm. it was an interesting process to go through that. But I, I would never describe myself as a philosopher. Sure. Well, yeah, I actually study philosophy as well. And okay. I, I think <laughs> I think it's it's really valuable to help understand the world in a in a deeper way and to approach big ideas like inequality more cogently and more thoughtfully. So I, I think we have that in common. And did you find a particular philosopher that inspired <laughs> you? <laughs> I it's, I can't say I have yet, because I haven't gotten to the point where I am sort of reading philosophy for fun. For me, it's, I do it for my coursework, and then I do other things. But I am, I am finding, like, I, I just listened to a, a podcast about Arthur Schopenhauer, and he talked about the concept of compassion, and his point about compassion that... It is almost a more rational act than being an egoist. And so that definitely resonated with me. That's interesting, yes. And yeah. I think that's overall in, in, in what one learns is about that the world is the way it is because of the narratives we've had or the thinking 
mean, yeah. it's 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 been created in a certain way. It doesn't have to be this way, or we don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's contingent. It's something that societies have decided mm-hmm. over time. So I think it gives yes. you a critical perspective and a possibility of imagining and other worlds, other possibilities. Yes, without a doubt. I wanted to turn to the role of Oxfam International in the inequality space. Just a couple of general questions about its mission and sort of what it is about Oxfam that makes its approach unique and special. And then we'll go into other questions about the nonprofit world in general and the advice that you would give to people wanting to make a difference. So I'll start with a perhaps a basic question about Oxfam itself. Oxfam has, of course, a, a long history of humanitarian and development work. Its pillars include advocacy campaigns, development programs, and, and other important pillars. How do you distinguish Oxfam's approach to inequality from that of other nonprofits? Yeah, so it's a, a good question. And as you say, I think Oxfam as an organization and as a movement has been in, in listening mode increasingly as it as it rethinks itself and thinks what is the best way, what is the role for an organization like Oxfam that is present in so many countries and so many different cultures and with this um, strengths but also opportunities for for development and change. So I think Oxfam has over time really honed into the issue of inequality as as the key root cause of of many of the problems. And if you think, of course, there's inequality of income, inequality of wealth, um, inequality that shows in so many different ways in in all our our global problems, like inequality of how the climate climate crisis is affecting in such a different way, depending on on where you are or how everything in in life, how women are in, in, of course, in in different situations from from men and it's also all other gender identities. At Plan International, we also thought a lot about the girls issue. So Mm -hmm. how all these varying um, levels and multiple dimensions of inequality affect people's everyday lives racism, class difference, ethnicity, all those categories come into play. So I think Oxfam has been deepening this understanding of these root causes that in the end are power imbalances that prevent people from fully um, living their lives and making the choices that they would make. So what we do is, is really to be that partner that can be next to um, other organizations, people, people movements to really amplify those voices and to support. So to be an organization that that is looking at a systems change, not seeking to make solutions that are addressing symptoms, but really deeply understanding that there's a system that is generating this inequality and, and to we need to rethink it more deeply. And, and actually, I think at this moment in time after all of us have gone through a, a one year of pandemic and, and, and the situation continues. I think there's a lot more understanding that the system that we created is not a system that works for the majority. Yeah. And, and that in a moment when we have a shock like the one we've experienced, the shock came <clears throat> into an unequal world and is the shock is, is deepening inequality. So that's it means that we need to take action. So we can't just continue to observe the inequality widening. We need to see how we're going to address this um, yeah. with everybody around that is increasingly understanding it. I think it's important to, <clears throat> at least I have found, it's important to distinguish in your mind between poverty and inequality. And that is sort of the inflection point that colors your new global strategy for Oxfam for the next decade. The idea that Oxfam should not just try to empower people financially to get out of poverty, but actually fight existing structural issues that take place in the developed world and the developing world that contribute to inequalities. And inequality 
very much being the root cause of poverty in many circumstances. So I, I wonder what sort of sparked that change in Oxfam strategy? You, you mentioned, the, of course, the importance of identifying forms of inequality as, as the root cause of poverty, but what was it about 2020 and the more recent moment that pushed Oxfam to make that strategic change? I think in, in at the core, it's about power imbalances. So an understanding that it is not enough to work on the micro level of, of supporting, uh, well, micro in the sense of one aspect of the equation of uh, poverty reduction. So many countries have poverty reduction strategies, but how? what does that mean in terms of transforming the whole system? You can't just... Um, have an impact on on reducing poverty without understanding that the equation needs to be looked at in general. So what social protection systems we have, what health, what education, and and how are our workers remunerated or how are they protected? For example, in this pandemic year, we know that uh, so many workers are not entitled to sick pay, which is so fundamental, or to mm. unemployment benefits. So all these things that are the social protection that is required for people to to be able to to really live uh, full lives are not there. And and those decision makers uh, at the many of the countries are in fact part of the elite that is 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 perpetuating their ways of being but there are also many examples and and since being in Oxfam I've, I've come to into contact with many countries that are deeply involved in reducing inequality and are really um, aiming their public policies to that uh, in a very deliberate way so they range from Sierra Leone as a country with very limited resources or New Zealand or South Korea Costa Rica so being very deliberate about how their investments are ways in which they're going to reduce inequality. And, and one aspect of this is also um, progressive taxation. So it's not enough to, to, how do we raise the resources to transform? We need to raise them in a way that are, that is fair and, and that enables all to contribute in, in line with, with their possibilities. So that's, I, I think the, the understanding is is now that you cannot continue to have infinite growth also in a planet that is is yeah. limited and that has resources that we're all understanding we're reaching those planetary bounds and in some cases we're overshooting them so if we want to to have a planet that that works for all we need to consider redistributing and using the resources differently That's a nice transition to a, a question I had about how should listeners situate the challenge of inequality relative to other global challenges like climate change or issues in global health? Because in my research, I have found that in many ways, if you focus on inequality or the goal of empowering people to live better lives, that in many ways will tackle another set of global challenges as a result. You end up empowering communities to fight climate change or empowering them to have better health outcomes or better education outcomes or better governing outcomes. <clears throat> so to what extent do you view inequality as sort of the root cause of other global challenges or perhaps the most pressing global challenge to solve at this current moment. Yeah, so as you say, if we focus on, on addressing inequality, which is also a, a, a difference in voice. So as I was saying, in, in, if you are in the deprived or, or in, the, in, the, in the part of the equation where we, you don't have resources, you also sometimes have, don't have the same voice or representation. So how do we equalized in a way that we hear from all perspectives because we're only hearing from one in the terms of, of gender inequality. Traditionally, we have heard primarily is being the, the dominant voice of, of, of men. Increasingly, that has been changing and we are opening to uh, 
different gender identities, but it's not some. It's still a struggle in many countries where the value the value of of, of women and girls is not seen on an equal basis, and the same with racial and ethnic marginalization. So, if if we see there's many dimensions of inequality which are preventing um, all members of, of society to participate in equal ways. And if in terms of uh, the climate uh, crisis, it's it's an extreme injustice in the sense mm. that the richest countries and, and the wealthiest people are actually using the majority of the Earth's resources and the carbon emissions. Around the richest 10% of the world population is responsible for, for 52% of the total carbon emissions, whereas the poorest um, 50% are just responsible for 7%. And in the end, they are also the most affected by the climate crisis. If, and, and this will lead to migration and to food shortages, to extreme situations. So this level of injustice, we don't see, we need to show, and this is something that Oxfam has been doing uh, for many years now, showing the full equation of how these things are out of sync. And in reality, the, the gap is growing and how if we don't address it, the impact um, on the most vulnerable will just continue to, to grow. We see it also in the vaccine um, issue. So this is now very blatant how a few uh, richer countries are able to vaccinate. But in the reality here, we know that by vaccinating a population um, in the US or Canada and the UK or Europe, you are you cannot solve your your problems for your own citizens if you don't support in solidarity the whole world because something like a pandemic cannot be solved within national borders. So I think the pandemic helps exemplify the, the problems that we're facing on all different aspects. And, and it is a really like an X-ray of society showing us how these extreme disparities actually work against everyone. So there's no you cannot continue to accumulate without understanding that your accumulation has impact on others. That's great. I'll ask one more question about the nature of Oxfam's work before we turn to uh, the more general questions I have. I, I suppose I should have asked earlier the sort of what Oxfam's work looks like. And I should reference that Oxfam is one of the largest charities in the UK. It is very highly ranked on NGO advisors, rankings of the best social good organizations. So it has a very proven approach to tackling inequality. So could you just shed some more light on what the work at Oxfam looks like in its 20, 20 or so partner organizations and how it is that Oxfam is effective at tackling inequality based on its day-to-day its -day approach? Well, there is a, a big diversity and uh, we have a global strategic framework that focuses on four key areas. So just economies, gender justice, climate justice and accountable governance. And those are the big system changes. And then how then how that um, operates is, is through our own understanding of our role in, in society. So we as an organization or as people are immersed in the societies that we're seeking to transform. So the first transformation that we have to do is ourselves to understand how those power dynamics, um, sexism, racism, all these elements are ourselves and how do we overcome them? And as we overcome them, be the best um, partners. So we're an organization that partners with others, uh, seeking as much as possible and with them um, in our humanitarian belief to be in partnership with locally led um, organizations, feminist and women led uh, organizations that are those that are in direct contact and with deep knowledge of the communities that we're working with. Increasingly, all the work that we do also is, is linked to influencing. So the, the programming approach is always a program that is um, working with partners in communities and at the same time seeking to influence at the local, national and international level. So it's at all levels being in, in dialogue um, at the international level, bringing those issues that are known from 
direct contact with our communities, with what our partners say, bringing it um, to the attention of decision makers at the global level. And conversely, also bring those big um, new ideas or, or new directions that are coming to what um, needs to transform in, in some of the communities and countries where we work. There's also a big area of humanitarian response, so understand, um, responding in situations of crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and in that, we're present in, in a number of countries that are fragile or conflict-affected, where, where Oxfam is present with its partners um, delivering life-saving uh, humanitarian aid. Just to <clears throat> sort of capture what we've covered so far for our listeners' sake, I think we've covered a lot of great points about Oxfam and in particular Oxfam's approach of being this sort of listener who amplifies and supports marginalized or otherwise forgotten voices. So I think that's a good piece for our listeners to keep in mind. You made this strategic adjustment in 2020, recognizing that inequality is about balance of power and how fighting poverty requires addressing power dynamics and the, and the various ways that that manifests. And then Oxfam's approach is, as a confederation, it partners with people on the ground, partnerships on longer-term development goals, but also tackling more short-term humanitarian goals. So that's, if, if we could summarize Oxfam's brilliant work in in uh, a couple sentences, that would be my best best attempt. Yes, it's so, a very good attempt. Yes. I would just add that there's something that I think in which we partner and, and are, are helpful, I think, is, is how we produce reports and data yeah. that helps inform decision-making. For example, uh, when I was saying governments that are challenging themselves to reduce inequality, they use... Um, some of the metrics that we produce on what is, an, is what is effective. So I think it's an organization that is constantly learning and listening and thinking and proposing approaches that work and that can be tested in different contexts and then reviewed and learned again. But there's a constant thought leadership and thought process in partnership with others. And, and nothing that we do can be done alone at all. So it's, it's definitely a listening and convening. Yeah, wonderful. So one of Boulder's goals as a platform is to help listeners understand what they can do about the topics we cover. And so I wanted to ask you about the nature of nonprofit work in general, stepping back from Oxfam and perhaps going back to your time at Plan International. For listeners who want to make, say, the biggest possible difference on global inequality, do you recommend nonprofit work specifically? What have you found are the benefits to approaching global challenges like inequality from this unique nonprofit approach? So I see organizations like Plan International, Oxfam, others. We are global organizations that are representing civil society at different levels. So we complement the work of governments and the work of corporations. So it's a, it's a sector that is about the perspective from communities. So very specific. And I think one of the, the key things, uh, if you work in this, in this world of, of international development or um, humanitarian work is, is to start with enormous respect and sensitivity to the context. And this is something that we are constantly ourselves, our staff, learning and relearning and ensuring because there's in the past been a tendency to come with solutions and, and say, this is what needs to be done. And, and now I think we challenge ourselves constantly to be a, a, a very good listener and a very good partner um, and, a very, and, and recognizing our own power, our own privilege and put it to the service. So it's, it's, I think, an incredible opportunity to, to listen to so many different perspectives and to bring them um, in dialogue and to seek to, to, to find alternative ways. So it's, it's an increasingly challenging world, I would say, because there's a, a tendency 
to to seek to to close down movements. So many countries are, uh, we call that a shrinking civic space. So where there is increasingly control of what can be said and by whom, and uh, yeah, an attempt. And and in fact, the COVID and um, the pandemic world has been one in which this has been exacerbated. In yeah. uh, where things have closed down in terms of the possibility of people mobilization, of course, because of the transmission of the virus. But beyond that, it's been um, a moment when there's been greater isolation. So I think the power of these organizations is the ability to bring people together, to convene, to listen, and to see the common trends and to be able to to shape possible futures that are, are different and that are beyond national borders. So in that sense, it's different from from working mm. for a government, which is a, a very different challenge and important one. Also, responding to 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 the wishes of of voters and citizens, but a different task, which is tends to be, of course, more focused in that territory. And here we're trying to cross and and see the common humanity. I'm sure over your long nonprofit career, you have learned certain leadership lessons about what it takes to lead a nonprofit organization, not just to help it survive, but to help it thrive and to help it achieve its mission and grow. What are those lessons that you've learned about leading First Plan International by leading the Colombian chapter and then as chief operating officer and now at your time at Oxfam? So I think... Uh, for me, it has been, well, I suppose many things. It's a very good question. <laughs> I think the first word that came to mind when you asked is humility. Mm-hmm. And and it keeps just growing. <laughs> humility is understanding yeah. my my place um, as, as someone who wants to to serve in order for others to, 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 to thrive and to achieve. So, of course, ultimately, people who, who have their rights have not been upheld. So we want, I want them to, to thrive. I also want our volunteers, our partners, our staff. So the more I, I have responsibilities in organization, my, my responsibility, my main responsibility is to be the best conduit for them to have the, everything they need to, to thrive. So I think it's a leadership of, of, of a lot of listening and seeing the common, connecting very diverse perspectives and, and seeing possible ways in which, they, in which they can be seen shaping different possibilities. I don't know, that may sound very abstract, but... Um, I think so. A lot of energy is it's another thing that I've. You need a lot of energy for and and optimism and and strength and resilience to to believe about the possibility of of changing and and of transforming. So yeah. it it it's not something that happens without without putting a lot of effort in there, but also trying to make it more like a dance. That's how I see it: dancing and. Dancing, something I've learned actually in this period is accepting and embracing, like in salsa dancing, but of course I danced in Cali as I grew up. Um, in salsa, you have to have the, the, the partner has to be somehow resisting and, and that uh-huh. resistance to change and oh, the wow. difference of the other makes it dance better. <laughs> so it's learning instead of thinking, oh, there's resistance here, there's a difficulty here. Um, let's push it through anyway, regardless. No, so dance with it and and see what am I learning from it from that other perspective. So I think deeply, it makes me every day, I believe, a better person. Mm-hmm. So I I like that challenge and I take it as that as it's 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 about myself and and being the best person I can be for for these roles. Wow, <laughs> of course I <laughs> I love the dance analogy. And it's something I, of course, I've never thought of, right? But the idea that nonprofit work is very much a push and pull. It, it, it relies on a certain rhythm. And yes, <laughs> yes I... And it's the rhythms of the world. 
So that's yeah. the other incredible thing because uh, you take rhythms from here, from there, and 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 they're bringing a great a harmony within it, but respecting wow. individuality. <laughs> so, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. So did you did you dance salsa growing up then? Yes. Wow. Yes, and now uh, each time <laughs> I go somewhere, I really try to dance the rhythm because it yes. it brings you um, a feeling that is, of course. <laughs> you, you connect with people um, yeah. and that as well to understanding uh-huh. how they perceive it and, and it's you know extremely varied as we know um, yeah. all the different possibilities of dance <laughs> <laughs> yes wow oh that's that's very touching I, I love that mm. yeah I I wanted to ask about how nonprofits can be sensitive to local contexts and that was a big point you raised earlier about the sort of the the challenge of nonprofit work is ensuring that you are not coming with an explicit top-down approach that imposes certain policies or programs on a community, but rather one that empowers that community to to pursue the best outcomes for them. And with Plan International specifically, it it was a non it's a nonprofit that was at least your chapter was based in the global south in Colombia. And there's this sort of global south approach you can take to nonprofit work that's more bottom up, more sensitive to local context. So for listeners who maybe want to go into nonprofit work, how can they ensure that those operations are sensitive to to local contexts and avoid some of the the pitfalls that big nonprofits can can fall into? So, yes, that's a good question. I think the, the whole sector is, 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 is thinking about that and, and how we can be not only as, as you are a Global South chapter, but as a global organization, how do you ensure that those power dynamics that are somehow inherent to the creation of, with the best intentions of, of international organizations, how they are not uh, reproducing a, a colonial type of, of approaches. How do we, are, how are we really respectful and transformative? And that depends very much on the people that are leading those organizations and that are working in those organizations and the values that, are, that, that we all have. So it's how do we, ensure we exercise those values in, in everyday behaviors and how do we establish what are those norms of the organization by which we, we hold ourselves to account. So I think how we do things is even more important than what we do. So how we, and, and as I said, we are all in, in cultures that are, um, that include abuses and sexism. And, and so it's part of, understanding where that comes from but also saying we we as an organization have to more than any other deal with those things and and Oxfam and plan and all organizations have the moments of of really addressing this and making it it's an important conversation about our own culture so that we have an organizational culture as well as we have the cultures of the different countries or regions or cities where we are present and where we are working so I think increasingly also those who are um, working in, in a certain area with partners are from those areas. So they're not, they, they know the, that culture of the area and bring also an organizational culture mm-hmm. of, of, of respect. Thank you. You have referenced in your bio that you are very much a believer in the power of collaboration. And this concept is is really exciting for me because I believe that the internet is sort of changing the way that nonprofits and other groups can collaborate on global challenges like inequality. So I I wanted to ask sort of a, a macro level question about perhaps how listeners can not just go into nonprofit work based on its inherent benefits, but actually how they can improve the nonprofit world and make it more efficient and effective at its work. So on the 
concept of collaboration, how do you think NGOs, nonprofits can improve how they collaborate in, in this digital age to tackle global inequality and other global challenges more effectively? Yes, I think there are many opportunities. And I think we've all learned in this past year about the possibilities of where, where our precise locations matter a lot less yeah. and we can be uh, in you know in connection with with so many others so we were limited before in reality more by our own minds and our ways of doing than we're exploring new possibilities so this um, virtual world um, in which we now work is is one of of the ways and of course it's a world is a world that is not um, there for everyone so expanding the access to to the digital is is fundamental because one of those huge inequalities and uh, that that means that a, a, an unfortunately very large number is left behind so there's that pitfall but also an opportunity for for collaboration and i think as as ngos we have to be a lot better so we have i think important um, partnerships and alliances that are are obviously the more powerful because of of the of the members but i think we can do more in terms of showing how we can all bring in different elements of 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 a bigger picture of 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 change and recently in in france for example greenpeace oxfam and two um, organizations french organizations worked on on challenging the French state and suing the French state for inaction on, on climate issues. Mm. So this collaboration there, which brought a lot of attention and, and a great movement around it, the result of that is that the court orders the French government to act on, on a series of elements that are actually going to have huge impact over a long time and, and, and that are fundamental really for, for the addressing the climate crisis. So it's an example of powerful collaboration of organizations with different strengths. So I think we, we of course, need to do a lot more and, and, and break any, any silos that even sometimes exist within organizations. So how do we ensure that we work across without that, for example, was, was in, in French, the, the case of the century, L'Affaire du siècle, where it, it is deeply transformative. Well, the People's Vaccine is another um, huge alliance of many bringing their their different strengths and, and knowledge to to tackle which what we believe is the key inequality issue of this moment that we yeah. need to address urgently. So that has also happened thanks to a lot of exchange and and in reality the possibility of of looking at technology and and also in that case medical technology differently. I will ask one more question related to this, this uh, sort of advice section that, that you want to offer listeners, uh, I guess two, and then uh, I have my closing question for you. This is related, I guess, to the previous question, but for, let's say there's a college student listening to this podcast and they are very smart, very motivated. They want to help solve issues like global inequality, but they don't believe that nonprofit work is is lucrative enough. It, the pay may not be great. Maybe it's not very glamorous to them. What do you tell those people who, in their core, perhaps know they want to change the world in a, in a fundamentally good way, but are hesitant to go into this sort of work, given the the financial or reputational challenges that it carries? So I think it, it takes people in, in all sorts of professions and in, in all sorts of walks of life to, to change society. So I don't think that this sector is, is the only way, but we are, as we are all consumers, for example. So we well, if we are conscious about our, our, our consumer habits, so we wake up in the morning and what is the coffee we're having or how are we, every decision that we're making through the day as consumers is a decision that 
carries political weight. So what type of companies are we supporting with our with 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 what we buy? Or we're also voters uh, in many countries or political citizens. So we can also think uh, through the the political uh, pr um, proposals that we are supporting. Uh, there will be consequences that have greater impact or not on inequality. So I think you can think of, of all sorts of ways in which if you are, for example, if that person becomes a business leader, one of the key ways in which they can support in inequality is, is making sure that their workers um, are protected and have all their rights uh, upheld. I think there's a basic inequality around gender, around race. So those are having the strong commitment to be actively anti-racist, to make sure that all voices are heard, that all these things are, I think, everyday actions that that person and, and in their career decisions, they can integrate it, I'm sure, into any profession that they take in the future. Wow. Yeah, and you, you must have read my mind because the next question was about everyday acts that people can take. And uh, you pretty much already answered it. You, you gave some great points about consumer habits, about voting, about leadership in private organizations. I wanted to touch on, on the topic of everyday acts, Oxfam's donation model, which I think is quite robust. Do you, how should I phrase this? I see philanthropy and donating to nonprofits like Oxfam as, as a potentially very powerful path for people to help solve inequality in the span of a single day. What are the, in your mind, I know you've already covered some of them, but what are the, the best ways that citizens of the world can, can fight inequality, not just with, with voting or with leadership in, in their work, but on a more basic level, like donating, like volunteering, things like that. Yes. What, what does that look like and how can that be effective for people? Yes. Well, thank you. you I didn't say that's part of what want to do. And I think it's this yeah. solidarity. So thinking of, of others. So it can be, I think, for some people in the most immediate environment and, and people they know, but I think it's to challenge ourselves to put ourselves in the shoes of others or in the positions on the, the lives of others uh, and and to to know that organizations like Oxfam and others are are um, there um, to support people in the moments of, of crisis. So how can we exercise our solidarity in that way? So yes, um, there's in, in Oxfam, in many countries, we have shops, so that's one way in which people actually buy secondhand shops, which at the same time are, of course, more environmentally friendly. So they're also thinking of an impact on the environment by not buying um, more new things um, or buying things produced by, by partners um, that are generating income for community projects. So that's also one way. Uh, fair trade is one way in which we think and Oxfam yeah. has in many countries developed fair trade initiatives. Um, and, and that's one way in which you think your the amount of money you're paying for something is going mostly to the producer and is not staying in, in the in the supply chain. So that those ways and of course donating and of course organizations like ours live on, on donations and, and it's it's a a way in which we can also help um, create those movements and, and those communities of, of solidarity. It's not only about the fact that the very important fact of receiving uh, support uh, financially, but also about hearing what supporters and, and uh, from their different perspectives bring to the equation as a movement. And it brings legitimacy. For example, when I, I was fundraising in Colombia, it was also important to say it, it, it's the Colombian um, public can itself 
uh, help be part of the solution. We don't need to rely on on yeah. external sources, but that means that then more money can go to places where that's more difficult, to South Sudan or to Central African Republic, where where there are no resources, and and that's where we need the global solidarity and 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 many people really being aware of 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 how living conditions can be so so difficult and. That, that we have an opportunity and an agency, so then we feel less um, frustrated or, or I think sometimes it's the certain, you can lose hope if you think about all the problems yeah. of the world in one go. But if right. you think, well, if I'm doing this and I'm doing that, then there's, I am contributing and I am one of many. So I'm, yeah. I don't need to be the only solution. I am a part of a, of a larger group. So yeah. I think it's it's an exciting prospect. Absolutely. I was going to ask this question last, but that's a nice transition to it. I, I'm, I want to know your vision for the future. And I know that's a very sort of heady question, but given your decades-long commitment to fighting various elements of global inequality, what do you see as the world's future in terms of inequality, if Oxfam can can achieve its goals of of tackling and sort of dismantling inequality and poverty around the world, what does that future look like to you? So a more equal future, I think, will be a future that we can where we can as humanity really live with dignity because our our own personal dignity i think is is in connection with everybody else's and and mm. we a, a future that is more equal and whether there's solidarity means that we we can even also enjoy what we have more because we know that we are sharing it and mm. and that we're not hoarding it and it's it's something that that is benefiting all so it means of making personal sacrifices. And I think we're all learning about that. This is not all, what I'm talking about is not something about going to work and doing things like this. It's also about in daily life, how do I change habits? How do I think of my impact as a person? And and how what I'm doing is, is, is supporting a, greater equality so what what is it in my everyday life that i do that that supports this bigger movement and yes it's to to be prepared to change and and to challenge every day and to challenge all these assumptions that we've had because if we want to look for the world in the longer term the the types of the life we have now is is not the the, the western ideals of of modern life are, are not sustainable mm -hmm. so we need to be more in tune with our deeper selves with others and with with the natural world yeah that's wonderful i'll offer a very short summary of what we covered just for our listeners sake because there's a lot of great information and then i'll ask the final question that that i ask all of our guests and i just wanted to Summarize the, the points you made about nonprofit work and how it's not that nonprofit work is the most important piece to the puzzle in, in solving global challenges, but it, it certainly is an essential component and it coexists alongside the public and private sector in terms of how listeners can get involved and sort of what it is about nonprofit work that might draw listeners to it. it it's very much an arena for humility, listening, seeing common ground, and also a place for people who have energy, optimism, strength to, to tackle these issues. And if listeners like to dance, perhaps nonprofit work is good for them too. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, so that's, that's a good uh, summary. <laughs> yes, right. So I, I think that that's a, a very wise summation of, of nonprofit work. And of course, we covered the very important concept of everyday acts and how just as someone can 
devote themselves to nonprofit work. So too, they can devote themselves to something else and then fight inequality in their everyday acts through consumer habits, voting, funding organizations like Oxfam and expressing solidarity with that sort of cause. So I think those are all wonderful points. My listeners know by now that this question always comes at the end. It's a question I love to ask. And it's a, it's a general question. What do you tell people who want to change the world, but who don't know how? I think we start, I start with myself. And I have to say it in the personal, because it's not about starting with you or anybody else. I start yeah. with me and start with my sphere of influence. So my first one is myself, my relationships, my impact. And then I grow from there and challenge myself further and further. But it's, I think it's, and I'm saying a lot, I think, but it's, I feel because it's from my heart. So how do I connect with, with you here, with people um, that I interact with every day in a way that is transformative, that where I'm giving and I'm receiving and learning. So I think mm -hmm. if I'm in this interaction, I am I'm constantly developing and developing others. And, and there's a chain that, that grows and, and, and has no end. So I think we all know how. And, and we all have a wisdom and, and, a, and a deep connection and a huge unity. We're not separate beings. So in that, in that vision of, of humanity and, and us together in this, in this joint journey, it's about knowing that we're all here and, and we're going somewhere and, yeah. and, and we're all discovering and, and learning and unlearning every day. So I think we all know and we just connect deeply with our deeper selves. That is a, a rather poetic way to conclude. Gabriella, it was an absolute delight to speak with you on, on inequality and your wonderful and inspiring story. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Gabriella Boucher. Gabriella, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Will, for those great questions. Yes, you're very welcome. <laughs>